1: Welcome to our podcast,
2: where we explore the world of technology and innovation with leading industry experts.
3: Don't worry, this is Money Talks, not Tech Talks, but bear with me. If you've been on social media recently, you'll have seen the output of ChatGPT, which uses artificial intelligence to generate text. The company that created it, OpenAI, is run by Sam Altman, a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. We asked the chatbot to come up with an introduction to this episode using an interview with Sam.
2: In today's episode, we interview Sam Altman, co-founder and CEO of OpenAI.
3: Not quite right. This episode covers much more ground. But as promised, here's Sam talking about the history of Silicon Valley as he remembers it.
4: It bombed out after the dot-com bust. Out of the rubble... Roughly starting in 2005, you had things like AWS pretty soon, you got things like the iPhone. And we had this Cambrian explosion of new technology and it was incredibly exciting. It was an amazing thing to be part of. And we got a lot of stuff that we now take for granted.
3: Along with AWS or Amazon Web Services and the iPhone came Facebook, Twitter and Uber.
2: Waltman discusses the early days of the tech boom and how it led to the creation of many successful companies we know today. He also touches on the changing mindset of entrepreneurs and the shift towards working on projects with longer time horizons and greater societal impact.
4: Now, I think a bunch went wrong in that process. But one of the things that I think like weirdly went right is a lot of people got rich and said, okay, now what? All of the apps we've made are great, but like, it's somehow not enough. What does the world really like need? Again, out of the rubble, out of the ashes, like this time a new Phoenix is emerging. I'm very excited. Again, I feel very grateful to be part of it.
3: What went wrong? And is he right to be excited? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. In Washington, D.C., I'm Alice Fulwood. In London, I'm Samaya Keynes. In Singapore, I'm Mike Bird. And in today's show, we explore the ideology of the builder class, the Silicon Valley techies who have turned their attention to the world's biggest problems.
0: First, we learn how Silicon Valley came to be this multi-generational connection from defense industry to silicon startups to then the personal computer industry. And all of a sudden people know what Silicon Valley actually is.
2: Then we hear why they're pontificating might just be public relations.
1: These founders really want to be taken seriously as thinkers. And I have to say on that score, they're not particularly successful. But if the point is to bamboozle media regulators into holding off on
5: necessary regulations, they've been quite effective at that.
3: Finally, we examine why it matters what Silicon Valley thinks.
5: We're getting to the stage where Silicon Valley is much, much more mature, much more powerful than it used to be. It's doing all these activities that previously would have been left to governments and nonprofits
3: To figure out what the builder class really wants and what that means for the rest of us. Mike hello. Hi, Alice. Hello, from a country stricken by strikes and snow. Yes, my uh, mother was moaning to me this week about having to send all her Christmas cards out early because uh, the postmen have all taken their leave.
2: I, I sort of find well-functioning public services a bit dull, a bit overrated. I, I want to be surprised. It adds to the sort of variety of life, doesn't it?
6: <laughs> yeah, that's easy for you to say from
3: Singapore. Yes, I recall the metro running late was once on the front page of the Straits Times uh, when I was in Singapore. (laughs) Still, this week we talk about how it is not only governments that are interested in solving society's biggest problems. The tech industry's titans now seem to be building lots of things that go beyond social media apps. Like uh, like crypto startups? Even more useful than that, if you can possibly imagine it. Our colleague Arjun Romani has penned an article about the expansive efforts of Silicon Valley's builder class, a group who gained their clout by founding successful startups, but who now occupy themselves writing long essays about the world's problems. Shall we hear from him now? Let's. Yes, let's. Hi Arjun, welcome back to the show.
5: Thanks Alice, great to be on.
3: So you've written an excellent piece for our Christmas issue in which you describe the sort of motivation and ambition of some of Silicon Valley's founders and how it sort of stretches well beyond their business interests. What do you think is the sort of ethos of the Valley?
5: A strange thing is kind of happening. So there's this growing segment of Silicon Valley's tech elite with much broader interests than your usual business titans. So I think in a sense, the Valley has kind of matured to the point where there's this highly intellectualized part of it, where you get clout and wealth from business, but it's your philanthropic side projects or even your blog posts or essays on big questions about the future of mankind and technology that really determine your, your status and your influence. So, you know, a couple of examples of this include Patrick Collison, who's the CEO of Stripe, uh, which is a payments firm, Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, which is this AI lab. You know, It's been in the news lately for its uh, new fancy chatbot called ChatGPT. And, and another person who I also interviewed for this piece, Joe Lonsdale, who is a co-founder of Palantir, now runs a, a venture capital firm. And so this kind of archetype, you know, of a tech titan who is of much broader interest than just their business is becoming much more common. You know, the number of tech billionaires in America has more than doubled in the last decade. That's faster than any other industry. Uh, when I interviewed Lonsdale for this piece, he, you know, he called it a builder class. You might have also heard of some of the other examples here. So like Dustin Moskovitz, who's a co-founder of Facebook, or Vitalik Buterin, who founded Ethereum, the, the cryptocurrency, and even you know un- until recently, Sam Bankman-Fried, who founded uh, the cryptocurrency exchange FTX that just blew up. And they all have their own philanthropic side projects that are quite strange, like this whole effective altruism movement that lots of people have been talking about. So it's worth noting that all these folks are kind of, you know, pretty young. They're under or at 40 years old, uh, and they kind of come to power at a time when the tech industry is being highly scrutinized by society for a lot of the, you know, externalities that it's caused, such as in social media and big tech. And it's also a, a more mature industry, as I mentioned. So that's probably contributed to this kind of broader set of interests that is maybe the new ethos of this corner of the valley.
3: And where did this kind of thought leadership going hand in hand with clout in tech come from? You know, who were the sort of real thought leaders that that led people in this direction?
5: So I think, you know, two of the really interesting, you you might even call them intellectual fathers to a lot of the figures I just mentioned, are Peter Thiel and Paul Graham. So just to explain who they are. So Thiel, so he co-founded PayPal with... Elon Musk several decades ago, so around 2000. He's also an early backer of, of Facebook, which is how he got a lot of his wealth. You know, he's done a lot of things throughout his career, but most recently he's come in the news for, you know, supporting Trump and several other relatively right-wing Republican candidates. And so when I spoke with Lonsdale, he actually called him like a professor of sorts because he studied philosophy. He's fascinated by it. He founded a campus newspaper when he was a student at Stanford. He writes essays about the French philosopher René Girard, who he actually studied with. So he's kind of a very, very different character than your, your usual business person. He also bankrolled several projects of an intellectual community within Silicon Valley in the early 2000s that calls themselves the rationality community. So this is kind of a group of mostly people in and around the tech industry who are obsessed with reducing their cognitive biases. And as early as the 1990s, they were, you know, concerned with the risk of super powerful artificial intelligence.
3: And what about Paul Graham, the other intellectual father that you mentioned?
5: Yeah, so uh, Graham, you know, he's probably most well-known for founding uh, Y Combinator in 2005. So Y Combinator, also known as YC, is probably the most well-known accelerator in Silicon Valley. And it really ushered in this wave of Internet companies that has come to define the last 20 years of, of tech innovation. He's kind of well known for writing these very long and meandering essays on everything from obscure programming languages to cities and the future of politics. And if you go to a party in the Valley, it's more often than not, you'll hear someone maybe mentioning Paul Graham and talking about one of his essays. It's kind of like required reading almost if you're a, a young engineer.
3: If you were to go to one of those Silicon Valley parties today... What's the the mood like in the Valley? You know, this year has been terrible for tech in many ways. The sort of market valuations of a lot of tech titans have crashed. There have been lots of layoffs, and you've had the fall of some of the sort of whiz kid builder class types like Sam Bankman Fried. Is the builder class and sort of lofty thinking
5: humbled at all? Um, so surprisingly, not so much. I think maybe perhaps because they've been you know disappointed with parts of the tech industry for for a while, these frustrations are maybe longer standing. So there's kind of a sense that the transformation that came about because of big tech, you know, including all the social media giants, didn't really live up to the excitement or wealth that it generated. For example, Peter Thiel actually once said, we wanted flying cars, instead we got 140 characters, kind of remarking about the, the actual lack of progress from the last couple decades of the tech industry. When I spoke with Patrick Collison and, and Sam Altman, they kind of had a similarish sentiment.
3: Right. And I took away from your conversation with Sam Altman earlier, this idea that new ideas can spring out of the rubble. You know, all this disappointment now could be ripe territory for the next wave of technological breakthroughs. Arjun, thank you so much. We are now going to step back a bit and hear about the history of the Valley from an American historian at the University of Washington. Margaret O'Meara, welcome to Money Talks.
0: It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
3: Could you just describe for people who've never been what Silicon Valley is like as a place?
0: Silicon Valley is this 10 mile by 5 mile-ish strip of California suburbia about 30 and 40 miles south of San Francisco. If we were in Silicon Valley 100 years ago, it would be farmland. It's, it was orchards. It was all agricultural. The only thing that distinguished it from any other farm valley in California was Stanford University, which had been founded in and opened in the 1890s. But otherwise, it was very sleepy, and it actually remained that way for a very long time, only after the Second World War and the Cold War, when America started investing heavily in military technology, did the electronics industry get a foothold there?
3: So that's how it started. How did it come to be what it is today?
0: Silicon Valley, it'd be surprising because when we think of Silicon Valley tech, you think of free market, freewheeling entrepreneurs, right, that have nothing to do with government bureaucrats. But in fact, the origins of the valley are in government spending. The United States spent primarily through the military and uh, the U.S. military spending a lot of money in the 1950s and 1960s and forward on small electronics to build more accurate rockets and missiles <laughs> and communication devices that also had military uses. The computer industry, where when main, you know computers were giant room-sized mainframes, that was mostly on the east coast of the U.S. What was originally just called the Santa Clara Valley and then in the early 1970s became known as Silicon Valley was small electronics and particularly silicon semiconductor technology, which turned out to be the thing inside everything we use today to communicate.
3: And how did we get from that to Apple?
0: One big catalyst for the growth of these startups was actually the U.S. space program. At the beginning of the nineteen sixties, John Kennedy declares we shall reach the moon by the end of the decade. And this sparked a massive amount of spending um, coming out of NASA. And what they needed were small light electronics like these startups in the valley were were doing. So that was the beginning of the flywheel, the kind of the startup ecosystem. But it really does have a lot of connections to the companies that are the big companies today because many of the people who worked in that industry went on to become venture capitalists they went on to found other companies that became the big chip companies notably intel which was founded at the end of the 1960s that you know had a bit of federal business but were mostly enterprise companies. They're looking, selling to other businesses. And so this multi-generational connection from defense industry to silicon startups to then the personal computer industry, Apple is founded in 1976. The Apple II comes out in 1977. The 1980s, it's a story of video games and personal computers. And all of a sudden, people know what Silicon Valley actually is. And then it keeps on going, the next generation is social media, search, mobile. And uh, here we are now in the 2020s with a world of big tech companies that have a global influence.
3: There has been a lot of recent turmoil, but there also seems to have been this philosophical shift. So Musk seems to have shifted to the right. And the crypto movement has a bit more of an anarchist, anti-government bent. How has this affected the culture of the place?
0: It's really interesting. The origins of the cryptocurrency industry really lie, you know, two decades back. Look at PayPal, which was Peter Thiel, some of the same people who have been, who are still around today, and Musk. (laughs) PayPal was an alternative currency that was something different than the fiat currency of of a nation state. And there's the more kind of True believers in the crypto movement really do feel quite strongly that this is a way to transcend the power of states and that's something that's a good thing. So that's always been there. I think it has more prominence because in part because there's so much more money, including the fortunes of some of the people who are its great proponents. The political turn, you know, I think there are two things going on. One is, Everything seems to be political now, right? Certainly the Trump years in the United States kind of made politics seep into everything <laughs> and, and businesses kind of having to take a stand on political and social issues where they historically had kind of stayed out of them and hadn't said one thing or the other, particularly in tech, which had been resolutely apolitical and dismissive of organized politics and government for so long. This was a real departure and taking these stances is a real departure. So that's part of it. I think that part of it is some of the more outspoken kind of right leaning or right aligned moguls are in some ways kind of being contrarian because the valley has formed such a strong alliance with the, the left side of American politics and the Democratic Party. But I think it also is a response to something that Silicon Valley hasn't experienced before the last five years, which is sustained criticism of some of its business practices. So it had a really good run of great press for a long time. There was a real optimism that these companies were indeed changing the world for the better and that connecting the world by social media was going to be extraordinarily empowering and advance Mutual understanding, and that these companies were in the you know famous catchphrase of Google, not evil. <laughs> and since then, they've had a lot more bad press, <laughs> um, for good reason. And I think this kind of contrarian, iconoclastic, you know, we don't care what the conventional wisdom says, is is in some ways responding to that.
3: If we were to speak in twenty years' time, from the AI age or the crypto age or whatever age we'll be in then. Will we still have these disheveled T-shirt wearing CEOs and will Silicon Valley still be where all of this is happening?
0: Well, look, no capital of innovation reigns supreme forever. <laughs> Florence had the Renaissance and uh, Manchester, the 19th century textile industry, and uh, Detroit was the Silicon Valley of the world a hundred years ago. I think it's healthy to remember that every company becomes a dinosaur eventually, or is no longer the cutting edge. Now, that doesn't mean that it won't be full of very, very profitable, very important companies. But this kind of startup driven, um, we're a hub of innovation and new ideas, I think it becomes harder and harder the more successful you become, <laughs> because you're making money doing the, the current thing. And it becomes difficult to really break from that and think about, well, what might be the new new thing?
3: Yes, I can imagine it does become much harder from here. Margaret, thank you so much for joining Money Talks.
0: It was great to be here. Thanks for having me. There you
3: have it. Silicon Valley could become the new Manchester or Detroit. After the break, has Silicon Valley just become a little more grown up?
2: But first, we would like to hear from you.
6: We are always thinking of ways to improve. And to do that, we want to know more about our listeners.
3: That's you. Please help by filling out a short questionnaire. You can find it at economist.com forward slash money talk survey.
2: And if you're not already a subscriber to The Economist, it's now a great time to take out a subscription.
6: It will give you access to Arjun's excellent piece on Silicon Valley's new religion and a really
3: brilliant essay on what went wrong with Britain. Listeners can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer.
2: Those links are in the notes to this episode.
3: Before the break, we heard how Silicon Valley has changed, but now I want to find out how that has changed the people who work there and make the tech that they hope will infiltrate much of our lives. To do that, I spoke to Adrian Dalb, a professor at Stanford and author of What Tech Calls Thinking. Adrian Dalb, hello and welcome to Money Talks. Thank you. So we've heard about this builder class in the Valley, these entrepreneurs who are much more interested in ideological goals. They write essays and blog posts about things like the future of man and machine or economic growth or government. How successful have they been in articulating those ideas, do you think, and uh, getting them into the mainstream?
1: I guess the question is, what would constitute success? There are moments when you get the sense that these founders really want to be taken seriously as thinkers. And I have to say on that score, they're not particularly successful. But if the point is to kind of bamboozle media regulators, policymakers into holding off on necessary regulation for a little while longer, so you can kind of make a little bit more money, they've been quite effective at that. I mean, they're obviously very serious people doing very serious thinking in Silicon Valley. But those people that basically are heavily incentivized to explain to you why you can't possibly understand what they're doing and therefore you can't regulate it. Well, you know, I think we are now kind of seeing the results of really governance and of regulation being really way, way behind in terms of what what it would need to bring to bear on on some of these companies.
3: There does seem to be some frustration among tech founders about what they see is stagnation in the world around them. You know, most famously, perhaps, is the Peter Thiel clip that we want to fly in cars, but instead we got 140 characters. Is this new way of thinking a response to that frustration, do you think?
1: I think that is a dissatisfaction that I think is shared fairly widely among, let's say, the lower rungs of these companies. But it's, it is noticeable to me that for a lot of them, these frustrations express themselves by a pretty pronounced rightward turn, which does suggest to me that their utopianism is not maybe the problem. If they felt that tech had not fulfilled its promises, you know, Elon Musk, for instance, saying that Twitter should be the world's public square, right? If he bought it and gave it to the US government, I imagine that that would be very consistent with that view. Um, Taking it over and throwing out people who disagree with Elon Musk feels like he thought the problem was something different all along. And so I do think that there are a lot of people in the Valley who who are frustrated and who are finding that the promises that the industry kind of first captured everyone's imagination with have not come to fruition. But it is noticeable that the answers to this from the Peter Thiel, from the PayPal generation, from the Paul Grahams of the world um, has been to kind of... Attack hard to the right.
3: Why do you think that frustration has sort of manifested itself as a rightward shift?
1: It's a little hard to say. I think that ultimately, uh, there are two things at play here, right? They, They sense that there are certain promises that have remained unfulfilled. But in the end, there are some things that they are very happy with the way they went. And one of them is that for all its revolutionary potential, tech largely... Made powerful and rich people more powerful and more rich. Disruption has this very funny way of keeping our hierarchies kind of intact, right? No Uber driver ever drives his way to being a millionaire. How many Uber programmers who probably came from middle-class families and you know are children of doctors or lawyers were able to to code their way uh, to being millionaires? So I do think that's sort of the schizophrenic position of it all. That on the one hand, they sense that there is a kind of radicalism that has gotten lost. On the other hand, they're really allergic to a kind of radicalism that ultimately would come to encompass their own position that might actually come for their own livelihood, their own station in society.
3: The tech industry has grown up a lot. These firms are listed companies now. Isn't it natural that they might move away from the perceived leftish, liberal, kind of Silicon Valley thinking towards a party that is more traditionally in favor of sort of smaller government or less
1: regulation? I think that there has been a maturation process within these companies. Twitter is a more mature company than it was 15 years ago. Same goes for Meta. But the maturation process of the old founders is frankly has been pretty limited, right? I mean, he's no longer Uber CEO, but Travis Kalanick essentially stumbled over the fact that his maturation processes could not keep pace with his companies. So I think that there hasn't been the kind of maturation that, that you see, you know, with the general counsel of one of these companies, with you know the coders who have grown, come from their 20s into their 40s with these companies. I think there it's happened. But those are the people that Elon Musk kicked out of Twitter first thing, right? The ones that tried to explain to him why this wouldn't work, why selling blue checks for $8 was gonna be a problem, right? Um, that's the maturation. And he has shown nothing if not a huge allergy towards those aspects of Silicon Valley, or we can say, this is serious. This is mature. This isn't startup culture anymore. It is for better or for worse something else.
3: Is there any of the idealism of that startup culture left?
1: With someone like Travis Kalanick, even with Elon Musk, I mean, the pretense at you know idealism was was pretty thin to begin with. The appeal was these are hard-hitting geniuses, you know, hard-charging, brilliant disruptors and you might want to invest with them because they can see things that you and I can't even conceive yet right but why were we focused on the founders we were told to because in some way that was part of how you sold a company especially in those days when these companies weren't making money you've traded on the founders genius because you couldn't really trade on the balance sheets you couldn't say you know, we're making so much money you could say we're going to make so much money because our brilliant, weird nerd boss shows us where we're going, right? And I think that is a type that has also kind of run its course.
3: Right. And what do you think the lasting impact of this year's
1: reckoning on the Valley might be? A lot of it depends on where its money comes from, right? You know, they've been like any other company for quite some time. They've been very invested in not letting everyone else notice that fact, but they have been. What created this kind of founder economy was of course the financing model. It's the fact that you're trying to perform initially for angel investors, then for the VC funds, then later down the line for, you know, your IPO and for your early investors and for for, for stock investors. And then eventually, once you're once you're really one of the, the big ones for pension funds, et cetera, et cetera, right? You're you're doing this kind of song and dance for them. If someone doesn't have a whole lot of dividend to run on. I don't think you have any other options, but to sort of go on a charm offensive and, and ha- let your genius kind of do the work. So, I mean, any real serious change to how Silicon Valley presents itself as opposed to how it actually runs will have contend to some extent with where the money is coming from. Adrian
3: Dalb, thank you so much for joining Money Talks. Thank you so much. I'm back now with Arjun Ramani, our global business and economics correspondent. Arjun, thank you for staying with us. Thanks, Alice. What do you think we should make of all this? Adrian is clearly very skeptical of all the falling over these genius whiz kids with their sort of expansive aims. What do you think?
5: Yeah, so I think it's certainly partially true. There's a lot of PR going on here. It may even happen more in the tech industry where, uh, you know, all these young companies are taking so much risk, they have to construct these grand narratives to... You know, hire employees and get venture capitalists to to buy in. But I think some of these people are a, a bit more serious than others. So, for example, Patrick Collison, who I spoke to for this piece, has almost created a full blown intellectual movement that he has called progress studies, and he's kind of collaborating with an economist, Tyler Cowan, on this. He's also, you know, working with a team of other economists on evaluating measurement practices in scientific labs. And, you know, when you speak to him, he's pretty good at citing research papers and economists whenever he's talking. So he's clearly well-versed in the literature, understands these ideas deeper than you might, you might expect, and is actually putting his, his money where his mouth is. And I think there are a few others like that, too. Certainly, all these people should be treated with a healthy dose of, of skepticism, but uh, there are, you know, some bright spots.
3: One of the reasons I think this is such a fascinating moment for Silicon Valley and its thinkers is that the stereotype has long been that Silicon Valley is a sort of liberal, y kind of place. So very culturally free, but also economically free and sceptical of big government. And it seems as though this year many of its sort of heroes or thought leaders have taken a, a rightward shift. So I guess sort of Elon Musk is the, the archetype of that idea. What's going on here, do you think, and how do you explain how that fits with this sort of builder class ideology?
5: Yeah, so I think, especially on the issue of free speech, there has been this turn where the Silicon Valley is probably more libertarian than other big segments of society. All these figures are probably very much in the pro free speech camp. But In terms of the rest of the way in which the Valley interacts with the government, it's a bit more complicated. So, you know, on one hand, Altman's OpenAI is actually a capped profit company housed under a nonprofit. It's a strange structure. And so basically, it's capped its return on investment at at 100x, and and Altman himself doesn't actually have super voting shares in the company. So, you know, he's kind of aware of the pitfalls of unbridled capitalism in that case. And if you look at Carlson, you know, he's actually working with scientific funding agencies to, to help them better, boost progress. So, you know, clearly they're taking the role of the state seriously. But on the other hand, you know, they're doing things that maybe other people would have preferred the the government to have been doing all along. Like, you know, why is the tech industry working on these problems that traditionally you might have considered the purview of the state? We're getting to the stage where Silicon Valley is much, much more mature, much more powerful than it used to be. It's doing all these activities that, you know, previously would have been left to governments and nonprofits and so forth. And in that way, its leaders are kind of being forced to think in these more intellectually complex ways. And and many of them are going in different directions.
3: Arjun, that was super fascinating. Thank you so much for joining Money Talks.
5: Thanks for having me on.
3: So, Mike Sumeyer, how do you feel about a more mature, more powerful, more intellectually complex, at least at sometimes, uh, Silicon Valley
6: Yeah, I I feel interested by it. I think I'm interested in this question of of how central all of this intellectualizing is to the actual products that these tech titans are developing. I mean, just take the example of Patrick Collison, who's clearly a very smart guy. Um, And if you go to his website, he's interested in these big questions like, how do people decide to make major life changes? Or, you know, what's the successor to the book? Or what's going on with infrastructure? And I guess there's this a kind of big thinking that is almost a form of conspicuous consumption, right? It, it's fun to have deep, meaningful chats about the big questions with other smart people. And there are many people in those networks who want to have those discussions. And then there's a sort of big thinking that actually translates into cash being spent on projects, right? So just to continue this example of Patrick Collison, Stripe Press is a publisher with a strapline Ideas for Progress. Stripe Climate lets companies send a share of their revenue to help scale carbon removal technologies – So it's not all chin stroking, but I think it is really important to distinguish between these two sets of intellectualizing within the valley. And I think looking ahead, the most interesting question is going to be how much of that cash washing around was the product of the abundance of cash, right? And now... There's a bit more scarcity. We've heard lots about the the techening, the tech reckoning. Will those sort of pet projects <laughs> become a little more scarce? right? Will some of the playground have to retrench as the founders have to focus a bit?
2: Yeah, I find all of this really interesting, and i was I was rereading something not related to tech the other day. There's a biography of Sir Robert Peel, who's a sort of favourite of mine. He was the British Prime Minister who abolished the Corn Laws, which were a big part of the founding of The Economist. And it it's quite sort of in line with what Margaret O'Mara was talking about there, about sort of capitals of innovation. He was the first Prime Minister to really come from an industrial background. His father was a successful businessman. He wasn't an aristocrat. And I think there's quite a close analogy to what's happening here, which is, of course... These sort of business and corporate and technological revolutions eventually all leave a mark on politics and intellectual thought. You saw that with Carnegie and Rockefeller and in a much darker way with Henry Ford, for example. The other element that is striking to me is this is all very, very Californian. Whether it's a question of whether tech's becoming more right-wing, or whether it's discussion of progress studies, or whether it's crypto or whatever, the common vein between all of these things that I see is that it's got that sometimes refreshing, sometimes slightly bonkers West Coast attitude going on. It's very fast-moving and unique. There's a writer called Vincent Bevins that called Californians some of the most religious people on Earth, But it's a zeal for something like CrossFit rather than Catholicism. And I think the old world is going to have to get used to that sort of really, really energetic, fast-moving mindset being much more deeply embedded in a lot of political and intellectual thinking as well.
3: Yeah, I think that's a great way of characterizing the mindset. My impression from the episode is that Silicon Valley is clearly now a very established, very mature place. And that's leading to a few of these simultaneous dynamics, which can feel a bit difficult to untangle. So on the one hand, you have this maturity uh, in the companies that Margaret was talking about. So these are sort of big listed companies, which are now increasingly being targeted by regulators, and therefore possibly shifting a bit ideologically to the right, which has historically been the sort of side of of less regulatory intervention. And that feels very logical to me. And and that kind of like hunkering down or ossification of those big established firms might also lead you to think that the heyday of the valley is behind it in that these big firms have stopped innovating as much. And, you know, people have been writing obituaries to Palo Alto, us included, for, you know, several years now. And then at the same time, you have this sort of enhanced power, wealth, and clout of all of these sort of massive tech titans, and they're flexing that in, in different ways. So Elon used it to buy Twitter and is doing things with that. And the people to described, like Sam Altman and, and Patrick Collison, they're flexing their power in, in different ways. And that has led to experimentation with things like chat GPT and AI, and it might lead you to the conclusion that, you know, actually... The frustrations that Arjun describes people feeling that lead them to pursue these new projects might mean that we're a through peak social media, but the Valley's moving on to its next phase, to harder tech phase, perhaps. And and that kind of lull mirrors prior periods of frustration before the sort of next new thing came along. And It's kind of difficult to know which narrative is more true. I do think it's possible that the tech giants of the 2010s got so big and powerful and all-consuming that their decline possibly does signal the decline of, of Silicon Valley itself. But I think Arjun does make a strong counter case to that idea. Even though some of the sort of era of free money, abundant cash has come to an end, these people still have a lot of money and power and time, and they're working on these huge new problems without major constraints yet. So something powerful may, may really come from that. But with that, we should pivot to our stats of the week. Uh, who wants to go first?
2: My stat of the week is 10 million, which is the number of tourists that have been to Thailand this year. With very little of the year left, they've reached that landmark, which sounds like a lot of people, but is actually sort of rubbish by Thai standards. Pre pandemic, Thailand got about 40 million tourists a year. So we're running at something like a quarter, and about 25% of Thailand's pre-COVID tourism numbers came from China, which I think sort of underlines the fact that with Chinese reopening now happening very, very quickly, there's lots of other parts of Asia that have basically been waiting for this to happen and can't really recover fully economically until those Chinese tourists and Chinese money is able to get more easily out of the country.
3: And uh, you didn't want to do Thailand a solid by going to visit them instead of Japan?
2: Uh, I visited once this year. I spent about 13 hours in an airport in Bangkok. Uh, I stayed in a pod. I'm not doing it again anytime soon. I- I'm sure I'll be back at some point, but but not yet.
3: Not enough to make a dent in their GDP stats like it was with Japan then. My set of the week is... 83, which is the number of countries that do not have an extradition treaty with the United States. And uh, the Bahamas is not on that list, which led to the arrest and potential extradition of Sam bankman fried after the downfall of FTX. And after he was arrested on a Monday night, Sam bankman fried might wish that he had picked to found or headquarter FTX in a, a different country. He had a long list of them to choose from.
6: Yeah, I mean, it's almost like some of these things weren't 100% well thought through.
3: I wonder what the
2: nicest country is on the non-extradition list. If you, if you had to run from the long arm of the American <laughs> legal system, I, I, I should make a list just in case. No,
3: I mean, I have the full list up in front of me, not because I'm trying to run from the long arm of US extradition. Indonesia's on the list. The Maldives. Also Qatar, you could be watching the World Cup. You know, there are a lot of options.
6: Um, my striking statistic was pulled from chat GPT because I am fundamentally a cheat. I asked it to come up with a striking statistic and it gave me 1.9 billion, which is the number of adults that are overweight. Um, It didn't give me a denominator, so I don't know what share of the global population that is or what year it refers to. So I followed up by asking, what is that as a share of the global population? And it replied, I'm sorry, but I don't have access to current statistics or information about the global population, which somewhat undermines the first stat that it did provide me with. Yeah, I mean, I've got some questions.
2: Yeah, see, you have to subscribe to The Economist for the analysis. You know, they, they can give you the numbers sometimes, but the analysis, we can give you the analysis. So don't don't swap us for a chat bot just yet.
3: Yes, sir. Uh, you, you won't be getting your articles or your podcasts from chat GPT anytime soon. Uh, you'll have to keep coming to us. And with that, our thanks this week to Sam Altman, Adrian Daub and Margaret O'Meara.
2: And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts.
6: And you can always write to us at podcasts at
3: Today's show was produced by Dan Asher.
2: Our sound engineer is Nico Raufast.
3: The executive producer this week was Hannah Marino. I'm Alice Forward. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Samaya Keynes. And this is The Economist.
5: Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. ugh the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right.